So we're going to get right into our subject for this evening, prophecies, signs of the times. And it is important for us to understand that um, in order to uh, grasp the prophecies, we, we, it is, it, we need to look at history as well. Uh, sometimes we need to understand the past in order to understand the future. Because the prophecies that we're looking at in God's word, uh, these prophecies have been, have been recorded for us for many hundreds of years ago, and yet now they are coming to pass in our very lifetime. Uh, yesterday, we looked at uh, the book of Daniel. We'll be going back to the book of Daniel on several occasions during this seminar. Uh, the book of Daniel, uh, written about 500 years before Christ, is dealing not only with events that transpired at that time, but it's also dealing with events that we are dealing with in our times. Uh, we talked yesterday about how the book of Daniel starts with a kingdom that has been lost. Uh, Jerusalem has been invaded by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and, and Daniel, amongst others, he was a young man at that time, was taken from Jerusalem to the city of Babylon. And so there's a kingdom that has been lost, there's a, there's a sanctuary, a temple that has been destroyed in Jerusalem, but the book itself is dealing with more than just historical events during the time of the prophet Daniel, it's dealing also with an ultimate kingdom restored in the end of time the very kingdom of Christ when he comes back the second time. So we're looking at a historic story, but it has a bigger picture to present about times in which we are living and things that are ahead of us. Now, you're gonna see that this is a pattern that we find in various places in the Bible. Now, I want to take you to the book of Matthew tonight, and we're gonna look at a couple of passages in the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Um, you will know that there are four Gospels which record the life and teachings of Jesus. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each day give us a perspective, a different perspective of the life and teaching and work of Jesus. And in the book of Matthew, the first of those Gospels, uh, there, is, there, there are teachings in there regarding the times in which we're living. There's actually a special chapter that we'll be looking at, Matthew chapter 24, that deals in particular with the signs of the times. The times, uh, the, the things that we should be looking at that will transpire in this world before Jesus comes back. But before we go to Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to go there in just a moment, uh, I want you to take notice of a little bit of the, the structure of the book of Matthew. Because in the book of Matthew, what Jesus does is he announces his kingdom. Now, you might think like, you might ask like, who is Matthew? Well, Matthew was actually a tax collector that became a disciple of Jesus. And so he was with Jesus for three and a half years and he reported all that he experienced and he wrote it down and this became the book of Matthew the gospel account of the disciple Matthew. And he had a transformed life as he experienced Jesus and lived and saw all that Jesus did for those three and a half years from his baptism all the way till the death on the cross. Now, Matthew, uh, rep he records quite a few of parables that Jesus spoke. Now, a parable is an illustrative teaching that reveals deep truths about the kingdom of God. And there's actually a chapter in the book of Matthew, chapter 13, that, that records a lot of the parable teachings of Jesus. And uh, there's a phrase that repeats itself several times, and that is the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like... 
The kingdom of heaven is like, and, and as Matthew is reporting uh, the teachings of Jesus, the parables of Jesus, Jesus speaks these parables about the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, and the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, and the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, and the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl, and the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet. And, and all of these are illustrations for us to grasp and understand what the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is actually like. Now, you might think, yeah, what, what about that mustard seed? Well, a mustard seed is very small, but it becomes huge once it grows into a tree, right? Leaven is something that causes bread to rise. A, a treasure is a valuable object. And so what, what we're looking at here is that Jesus is teaching different aspects about his kingdom. His kingdom, it might start very small, it might start by being planted within your heart, but if you allow that to grow, then your experience with the kingdom of God will become great. It will start small, but it will become great. It's like leaven. It, it, it works inside of us. Something happens. It's like a treasure. Oh, uh, when you think about the gospel as a treasure, it's the greatest treasure, the most valuable thing that we could ever discover in our lives is the teaching of Jesus, the teaching that he died in our place, that he rose from the grave, and that there's hope for the future. So these are all teachings about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. But we need to make a, a, um, an important distinction, and I've alluded to this already uh, in, I think it was the first or the second presentation, but I want to come back to this for just a moment here. You see, Jesus talked about his kingdom, but the kingdom actually has two phases, you could say. We have what we could call the kingdom of grace, and this has to do with how we live our lives in this world. In other words, you can already be right now in 2019 here in the United States of America or wherever you live in this world, you can be part of the kingdom of God. Even though you're an American citizen or you're a Norwegian or you're an Australian or you're from New Zealand, you can already become a citizen of God's kingdom when you allow the gospel to come into your heart. Amen? So that is the kingdom of grace. But then, as we are living in the kingdom of grace and we're living by the teachings of Jesus, we are also awaiting the final kingdom of glory. Now, when does the kingdom of glory come? That comes when Jesus returns. We talked about that yesterday, when Jesus comes back and he establishes his kingdom and, and all the kingdoms of this earth are passed away and his final kingdom has come, the kingdom of glory. And so we have the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of glory. And in the book of Matthew, very interestingly, uh, Jesus tells us parables about how we should live our lives, how we should live in that kingdom of grace while we are waiting and anticipating and expecting and hoping for the ultimate kingdom of glory that will come when Jesus returns. But you know what? When Jesus came into this world, and he taught about the kingdom of grace, and he taught about the coming kingdom of glory, he, he, often his teachings fell on deaf ears. As a matter of fact, another gospel writer, John, writes in his very first chapter, John chapter 1 and verse 11, these astonishing words. He says, he, referring to Jesus, he came to his own, and his own received him not. So, so Jesus came, became one of us, came to teach us the way of God, came to introduce the kingdom of grace, but for many, they did not receive him. And the question is why? Why did people not receive Jesus as the Messiah? I think we can sum it up in two words, false expectations 
false expectations. Now, this is the interesting thing. When you take the Old Testament scriptures and you go from Genesis all the way to the book of Malachi, the first, uh, you know, the, the, the Old Testament, all the passages and, and books and, and prophecies and teachings of the Old Testament, you will find a lot of messianic prophecies about the coming Messiah, about, about Jesus that would come. But you will find in the Old Testament passages that are talking about the kingdom of grace or the kingdom here and now, and you'll find passages that are dealing with the kingdom of glory. Now, the problem with the Jewish nation is that they are reading these passages, but they're picking and choosing which ones they actually are anticipating for the Messiah to fulfill. Are you with me? So they are looking at these passages and they're thinking, we are under the Roman yoke. We are, we are subjugated under the Roman Empire. You remember the days of Jesus, they were under another power. And so what they were waiting for in the Messiah is someone that would get rid of the Romans, that would set up the throne on this earth, and that the, the Messiah figure would become the king right here in this world. Well, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus comes into this world 2,000 years ago, and there's all these expectations towards what the Messiah is going to do. And instead, he starts proclaiming the kingdom of grace. He starts proclaiming the, the, the characteristics of his kingdom. And everyone, including the disciples, they're waiting until Jesus is just going to proclaim himself king, get rid of the Romans, and set up his throne on this earth. But it doesn't happen. And so there are false expectations. I can just imagine, you know, with all the miracles that Jesus performed, can you imagine the miracles he performed and the anticipation of the people that he would one day become king? And so they're looking at this and, and Jesus is healing people and they're thinking, ah, we can get ready to, ready to battle the Romans now because uh, if anyone gets wounded, Jesus will just heal them. And then, and then he provides, you know, food for 5,000 that are thinking, ah, oh, we don't even need to bring our lunch when we go to war with the Romans. He's gonna provide food for us. And then Jesus raises a person from the dead. And so they're all looking at, well, we're invincible. Let's go. Let's just make our throne and our kingdom here and now. But it didn't happen that way. Jesus did not come to set up an earthly kingdom 2,000 years ago. He came to proclaim the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, a new way of living in this world in anticipation of a kingdom in the end of time, the kingdom of glory. Are you with me so far? So false expectations. You know, I've actually personally experienced what it can be like with false expectations. You know, I travel a lot with my work. Um, I've been to many different countries in the world where I've done presentation series and, 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 and uh, sermons and, and such. And I remember once when I was on a public speaking tour and uh, I visited a country in Europe. And uh, usually I get picked up at the airport by people that either know me or they have seen me on some you know, Christian television program or perhaps on YouTube or perhaps someone has given them a picture. And so they know when I come through customs and I arrive, they know that you know, they, they recognize me, they pick me up. And so they bring me to wherever I'm going to speak. But on this one occasion, I was traveling to a country and the organizer of the event had taken two young people and said, okay, you go and pick up this guy. He hadn't shown any picture of me. He, uh, they only had a name and uh, he, uh, he had said to them, uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a missionary, they had said. And so these two young people make their way to the airport and they have a certain picture in their mind of what a missionary looks like. 
And so I make my way through customs and I'm, and I'm, I'm standing there in the arrival hall and I'm seeing people like they're, they're, that were on my flight and everyone's like finding their way and meeting people and I'm still standing there and I'm just looking around and there's no one there and I'm, so, I'm just, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll wait for a while and, and <laughs> less and less people are there in the arrival hall and I'm looking to the corner and I see there these two young people and I'm wondering if they're the ones that are gonna pick me up. And eventually they look at me and then they look away and then they look at me again. I think, okay, I think I better ask them. So I move up to them and I say, you know, um, my name's Daniel. And they look at me and literally, I'm not lying. The first thing that he says is, but you don't look like a missionary. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you think a missionary looks like? I mean, in his mind, a missionary, you know, perhaps, you know, perhaps I should be wearing sandals and come with, you know, a staff and, and maybe a long beard. I don't know. They had a picture of what a missionary looks like, and I did not meet that picture. And sometimes that's the way it works. Maybe you've had a friend that talked to, talked to you about another friend and, and you felt that you kind of knew the guy already and, and they talked about him all the time and then you meet the person, it's like, oh, I need to adjust my picture here. <laughs> I had a different expectation. And this is what happened when you read the Bible. A whole nation of Jews have an expectation towards what they believe the Messiah will be like and then the Messiah comes and he doesn't fit that picture. And that's the reason why Jesus ended up on a cross. He was crucified because he did not meet the expectations of the people. They were looking for a glorious kingdom in the here and now. What Jesus came to proclaim was the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the, the way of living in anticipation of the final kingdom of glory. But that time had not yet come. And so Jesus is rejected, Jesus is crucified, but yet out of this whole disappointment, there is a, 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 a new movement that is birthed when Jesus rose from the grave. And, and again, he gathers together his disciples and, and he teaches them really um, the scriptures and, and, what he, and that what he had just accomplished was according to the prophecies. And then their eyes are opened and, and they start seeing that we need to preach the kingdom of grace. We need to preach the kingdom of heaven and we need to prepare the world for the coming kingdom of glory. Now with this in mind, I want you to take you to a passage in the book of Matthew and chapter 23, because I believe that we've now set the stage to kind of understand this passage that we're going to look at in uh, chapter 23 and particularly in uh, chapter 24. Now in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is now here for the last time in the temple. Now the temple was the very center of where everything was happening in the Jewish economy and culture. The temple was of utmost importance. The temple was where they would sacrifice and the temple was where they would meet one another, where they would meet God. And, and this was where the religious leaders would, would dwell and would teach. And, and so Jesus goes into the temple and he has this thunder sermon that you can read in chapter 23. And Jesus is very direct in his words. He is telling the religious leaders their mistake, their error in rejecting him as the Messiah. And take notice of his words here in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37 to 39. 
Jesus, after this thunder sermon to the religious leaders of his days, he says the following, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus here is reflecting upon the past. Think about all the prophets that have been sent to the Jewish nation. Think about all the prophets that were sent. You have Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Amos and Micah. And you have all these prophets throughout the Old Testament that were sent. And, and, and if you look at the way they were treated, well, it's not really the job that you would want to sign up for. Make me a prophet. They were treated bad. Many of them were, were rejected. Many of them were persecuted for what they stood for and what they taught. They were messengers of God, and yet they were not received. And now the very Messiah that they had foretold had come, and he had also been rejected. And he says here, it's like, it's like with tender words, Jesus is saying, I wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks. In other words, I wanted you to be under my wings. I wanted you to be under my protection. I wanted to make you a special people, but you have rejected me. You were not willing. Now, he goes on to say the following words, see your house. And when he says your house, he's referring here to the temple. He's in the temple at this moment. He says, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, now this was like throwing a dynamite into the congregation. I mean, this was such a, 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 a thing to say that, that, that was, was totally uh, revolutionary to actually say that the temple was going to be desolate. I mean, the temple was the very centerpiece of the culture of Judaism. Now, the temple actually this was a prophecy that Jesus gave here because the temple, not long after the crucifixion of Jesus, was actually destroyed by the Romans. Now take notice as Jesus becomes even more specific um, as we move into chapter 24 and verse 1 and 2. Uh, and the Bible says the following, Then Jesus went out, so he went out of the temple and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple, and Jesus said to them, this is a prophecy, this is a prediction, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, not only were the people surprised, not only were the religious leaders surprised, the very disciples of Jesus were surprised and amazed. They could not believe it that this was going to happen, that the, that the temple would be destroyed. Well, in the year 70 AD, the temple was actually destroyed. Under the Romans um, and, and the commander Titus that led his army uh, to Jerusalem, they surrounded Jerusalem and eventually they broke through the walls and they destroyed the temple. Not one stone was left upon another. It was utterly, utterly, utterly destroyed in, at that time. Now it's interesting because not only did Jesus predict the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, but in another book, in another gospel book, the book of Luke, uh, and chapter 21, he actually gave a warning to the disciples of Jesus, to his disciples about what they should do when the armies of Rome surround the city. 
Now, look at this passage here in Luke chapter 21. This, this is kind of the parallel chapter to Matthew 24. And Luke, in his account, gives us a little bit more detail as to this prediction of Jesus regarding the destruction of Jerusalem. And he says the following, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know its, desol its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Now, something fascinating ha happened historically. When Titus and his army um, stood uh, and, and had surrounded the city of Jerusalem, suddenly, for some unexpected reason, they actually retreated from the city. And it was at that time that every single Christian within the city, every single follower of Jesus within the city, knew that this was a sign for them to leave the city. And so they left. They left the city. They departed from the city because it was not long after that, that the armies of Rome returned. And this time they returned to stay. And eventually they broke through the wall and destroyed the city and they destroyed the temple. Amazing that Jesus predicted that this was going to happen and he warned his followers what they should do. They had been given a sign. And this is so important for us because you think, yeah, but why are you talking about this? This happened 2000 years ago. I'm living in 2019. What does this have to do with me? Well, just hang in there because these are all parallels to the times in which we are living. Jesus gives us signs. Jesus gives us warnings. Jesus gives us indications of what we should do before the things actually take place. So let's go back now to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, uh, we have just read that Jesus has predicted the destruction of Jerusalem. Now the disciples are amazed, the disciples are surprised, the disciples, uh, they, they, they cannot understand that this is gonna happen, and so they come with the following question. Look at this, Matthew chapter 24 and verse three. It says, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be. And they're referring to what J Jesus has just said in the first two verses, that Jerusalem would be destroyed, or that the temple would be destroyed, not one stone would be left upon another. And so they're coming to Jesus and say, hey, 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 when will this happen? When will these things be? And look at the second question, which is very interesting. And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? For them in their, in their Hebrew mind, the destruction of the temple was synonymous with the end of the world. If the temple is going to be destroyed, that must be the end of the world. And so they're coming to Jesus and saying, you just said that the temple is going to be destroyed. When is this going to happen? And by the way, when is the end of the world? When is the end of the age? And what signs should we be looking for? Now, what Jesus does in Matthew 24 is absolutely remarkable because what he does is he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem, but not only does he talk about the destruction of Jerusalem, which is basically answering the first question, he also inter, interwoven in his discourse in Matthew 24, he gives us the signs of the ultimate end of the world. And so what he does is he's actually taking the, the historic event for us now, the historic event of the destruction of Jerusalem and using it as a type or a shadow or a picture or an example of what things will be like in the end of time. And so when you read through Matthew 24 and you're looking at all these signs, you will find indications of things that were referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. But more than that, you will find indications of things that are happening 
in our very day and age, as we are waiting, not for the destruction of Jerusalem, but for the destruction of the world and the coming of a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of glory. Well, let's look at some of those signs that we then uh, find recorded in Matthew chapter 24. Take notice of Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to look at verse 4 to 6. And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. So when he is asked about the signs of these things and the end of the world, the first thing that Jesus says is take heed that no one what? That no one deceives you. So in other words, deception will be rampant in the end of time. Deception will be rampant. And he goes on to specify what kind of deception there is going, is going to occur. He says, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And, you, and, and, and this is something when we just have to look at, at, at recent history and, and we see all these, these, these claims of people that, are, that, that say they're a prophet or, or they say it's some Christ or messianic uh, figure. And, 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 and we know that this is a deception. Jesus has warned us. He says, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will deceive many. We talked about yesterday how um, based on the, based on the uh, passage in the New Testament, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we have a, a passage that, that, that portrays and describes the second coming of Jesus. And you might remember that it talks about Jesus coming in the air, and then, and then it talks about those that have been resurrected and those that are alive at his coming will meet him in the air. That's what it says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You can go back and read it. So in other words, anyone on this planet that has his feet planted on this planet claiming to be Jesus is a fraud. You know that because it's not the biblical picture of the second coming of Christ. And Jesus has warned that there will be people that will claim to be Christ. They will claim to be a prophet. Now, what else does he give us as signs of the time of the end? It says... Um, uh, I, uh, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Now look at the words here. All these are the beginning of sorrows. And then a little bit on in verse 12 and 13, he says, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And then in verse 14, here comes, here comes a good sign um, of, 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 of the, the end of the world, because we have many signs that are talking about famines and pestilences and earthquakes and, and wars. But, but then he also says this in Matthew 24, verse 14, he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So what needs to take place before the end will come? Well, we've already been given a little bit of a list in the verses that we have just read. There will be false Christs and false prophets. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes. Lawlessness will abound, but in the midst of all these signs that show the decay of this world and this planet. And in the midst of all of this, the gospel, the light, the glory of God will be preached and proclaimed 
on a worldwide scale. In the midst of, 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 of all the problems that this world um, is, is faced with, in the, midst of a chaotic, in, in, in the midst of a chaotic planet that is spinning out of control, there is a gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ that will be proclaimed. Hope will be given to all the nations. It will be proclaimed worldwide. So these are some of the signs that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 24. But maybe you're looking at the list and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, but um, how can I know that we are coming closer and closer to the end of the world? Because there have always been wars and rumors of wars, and there's always been pestilences and earthquakes and, 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 and such things. So, so how do I know that this is actually a sign that is showing me that we are close to the second coming of Christ? And there's a little indication in the passage of how we can know this. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 8, the Bible says this. In the New King James Version, it says this. It's translated like this. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. Now, when you look at the, the original language, the Greek language, uh, the translation can also be rendered um, in this way. And actually, the NIV translation renders it like this. And that is, all these are the beginning of birth pains. Now, that's an interesting expression. So when we look at these different signs, they can be likened unto birth pains. Now, I don't know, I'm sure there are some parents out here tonight. Um, I am the father of two boys. We have a son that is four, a son that is five, and a son that is two. And um, I have been, I witnessed both births. Um, my wife, I looked, uh, you know, I was there when she gave birth to our two sons. And uh, what you know, when, when, when giving birth, um, the contractions become more and more intense and more and more frequent just, you know, before the actual birth takes place. So it's interesting when Jesus says that the signs, they are like birth pains, what we can actually say is that the signs will become more intense and more frequent when we get closer to the actual event right? It gets closer and closer to the actual event. So, yes, there have always been famines. Yes, there have always been earthquakes. Yes, there have always been pestilence. But these signs will become more intense and appear more frequent as we get closer to the end. Now, I don't know about you, but if you follow along with what is happening in our world today, it is no doubt that the very things that Jesus predicted would happen are happening, but not only are they happening, they are becoming more intense and they are appearing more frequent. These signs are like rapidly fulfilling. Yes, there have always been earthquakes, but I'm telling you, there are massive earthquakes in the recent decade. There have always been, you know, hurricanes, but what we're actually facing right now, and now with the whole hurricane uh, uh, scenario, even here in this nation, we're seeing that these things are becoming more intense and more frequent. And it's an indication that we are getting closer and closer to the end. Now, if you travel to a city, you will be looking at signs to know that you're driving or traveling in the right direction. This is actually a picture from where I come from, Norway, so you won't recognize these places. But let's say you're traveling to some city here in the United States, and, and there's, a, there's a sign, and it tells you how many miles, or in Europe we, we, we have kilometers, but it will tell you how far you are removed from your destination. But you know what happens? The closer you get, 
to your destination, the more signs will appear. It might say, you know, uh, Los Angeles, you know, 200 miles, and, and but then you're getting closer, and, and the closer you get, the more signs will appear. Oh, now it's only 50, oh, now it's 40, now it's 30. And this is exactly what we're seeing taking place. Yes, there've always been earthquakes and pestilence and, and all of these things that Jesus predicted, but, but we're seeing them happen more rapidly and more intense as we're getting closer and closer to our destination. Or maybe we can say it in a more positive tone, closer and closer to the birth. Remember, it will be like birth pains. Well, what is the birth? Is it the birth of a new kingdom? Is it the birth of the kingdom of God that will finally come in the end of time? Oh yes, the New Testament is full of promises that when Jesus comes back, it will be the beginning of the kingdom of glory, a kingdom where there's no pain, no suffering, and no death. Amen? That's a kingdom to look forward to. Now, how many of you have heard of the law of exponentiality? It's interesting. Uh, numbers escalate at an increasingly rapid speed when multiplied. And there's this, you know, hypothetical uh, experiment that you can do. You've maybe heard of this before. Uh, there's a question, how many times would you have to fold a piece of paper for it to be thick enough for it to reach the moon? Now, of course you can't do that, <laughs> but hypothetically speaking, how many times would you have to fold a simple piece of paper for it to be thick enough to reach from planet Earth to the moon? Well, you'll be surprised at the amount of times. So you're thinking maybe thousands or millions. Well, actually, it's it's only 42. But you know what? The interesting thing is that 41 folds your halfway. And so when you fold it the last time, hypothetically speaking, if that would be at all possible, then you are doubling the distance and so you're, so you're suddenly there. Are you with me? So it's interesting that, you know, you, 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 it, it, it expands or it, it, it intensifies uh, right at the very moment where you wouldn't expect it. Uh, here's another experiment. Um, you're sitting in the top of Fenway Park Stadium and one drop of water is released in the middle of the stadium. How long would it take for you to be underwater according to the law of exponentiality? Well, you know, it's actually 49 minutes. At 44 minutes, not even half the stadium is filled, but it only takes one more doubling. And in the last five minutes, you are under the illusion that you have all the time in the world. And that's exactly what we're seeing with all the signs that are happening in our world today. We can think, oh, it's going to be still a long time. But then suddenly, when the frequency and the intensity is, 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 is adding up, suddenly we find ourselves in the very end of time, right before the coming of Jesus. There was a book written by Richard Swenson some years ago, uh, a book called Hurling Toward Oblivion. And he says in the following in this book, he says, the world is spinning out of control and approaching the threshold of lethality, a point where life as we know it can no longer continue. Irreversible trends, principles and forces currently at work in the world, in the world system are inevitably propelling us toward a cataclysmic outcome. What he's basically saying is here, we are, we are on a track and that track is we're on it and we can't turn around. It's, it's, we've gone too far. There, there, there's these trends and, and, and irreversible trends and principles and forces that are at work and, and you can't just stop the boat. You can't just turn it around. It's heading towards the iceberg and it's actually too late to do anything about it. You know, the only solution to this world is really the coming of Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm fully convinced of that. 
Yes, we can make political, there, there can be a lot of political decisions that are made that will help improve the environment or do something about something. And, 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 and yes, we should try to do our best to, to protect this planet. But I think ultimately the solution is not in human wisdom. It's in the coming of Christ. Amen. It's the new kingdom that is going to be brought about that has been predicted in this ancient book. You know, I'm from the country of Norway, and uh, one thing that my wife introduced me to, I'm not, I'm not Norwegian, I was actually born on a tropical island in New Zealand, and I married in Norwegian, and one of the th first things that he, she introduced to me was cross-country skiing. How many of you do have done that before? Cross-country skiing, okay, a couple of you. You know, the thing with cross-country skiing is it's very enjoyable, and this is a picture of, of, of us out there in the winter landscape, not far from where we live in Norway. But the thing is, you need to know one thing when you're, when you're cross-country skiing, especially when you're going downhill. You need to know how to break. But you know, my wife, she's, she's very adventurous, and so she takes me out cross-country skiing, but she doesn't tell me how to break. And so we're going up, and I'm having fun, I'm getting higher and higher, and I think at some point we have to go down, right? And, and then yeah, the time comes to go down, and it would have been kind of her to tell me how to break. You know, how do you put your skis in order to stop? And so I'm just going down this hill, and I'm getting more and more speed, and I have no idea how to break. And so, um, yeah, I had snow for lunch that day, you know? Boof, <laughs> right in the snow. I was heading down a course and there was no way for me to do anything about it. I was stuck. I was right there. I couldn't turn around. And basically, Swenson, in his book, uh, Hurling Toward Oblivion, he's saying, our world is like that. We are, we are going downhill and we can't turn around. We can't break. There's no solution to the problems of this world other than intervention from outside of this world. And that's exactly what Bible prophecy tells us. There is an intervention from another world. And it's the kingdom of heaven, it's God himself, it's Jesus that will return as king. Eugene Linden, which was an award-winning um, journalist in the late 1990s, he wrote a book called The Future in Plain Sight. And in this book, he actually lists some of the problems that our world are facing. Amongst other things, he talks about, he actually talks about the nine clues to the coming instability. He talks about the collapse of global economy, the migration of poor to cities, the population explosion, global warming, economical disparity between rich and poor, collapse of biosystems food and water shortages, infectious diseases, and radical fundamentalism in religions. Now, this was written again in the late 1990s. And so as we have moved into a new century, and we're now in the 21st century, we're now in 2019, and we look at that list and we say, yep, oh, we can check them off, each one of them. This is exactly what we are facing. And not only did, is it being predicted by secular journalists and secular scientists, but even more fascinating, it's been predicted by Jesus 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, he said that these are the very things that we would be facing when we are facing the end of the world. But I want to I ask a very important question tonight, and that is the following question. What is an appropriate biblical response to the signs we see? 
Because we can be here tonight and we can read about, we can read Matthew 24 and we can read about the signs and the things that are going to happen before Jesus comes. But we actually need to ask ourselves, every single one of us, what is the appropriate biblical response as I see these things happening more frequently and, and they're becoming more and more intense? What should I do? Because what can I do? I mean, I cannot turn this around if it's heading this direction, it's heading this direction. But, but what, what is my responsibility in the midst of all of this? And do you know there's a passage in the Bible that, that is just so beautifully written and describes what, what actually we can do? And so I want to, if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to the book of Luke. I actually didn't put this one up on the screen, but we'll read it from our Bibles. And you can read it if you have a Bible with you, or you can um, follow along as I read here. But go to the third gospel book, the book of Luke, chapter 13, and I'm going to read from verse 1. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. There was a tragedy that happened in the days of Jesus. There was a tragedy that took place 2,000 years ago. And the way that Jesus responded to this tragedy, I believe, is, 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 is an example and an illustration of how he wants us to respond to tragedies as they happen today. Okay, so look at what he says. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. There were present at that season some who told him, who told Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. Now, now, in order, we, we don't really have a lot of historical context as to what had happened here, but we can assume, based on what we know about the, the Romans and the Roman Empire and the situation of that day, that what we're t probably looking at here is that the Romans were upset about something that happened, and so they took revenge, and there were innocent people that were the victim of that moment. And so basically they are, they are, they are there bringing their sacrifice to God and they got caught in the moment and their blood was mingled with their sacrifices and, uh, and, and, and Rome is responsible for this. This is a tragedy that has come upon people and they are asking Jesus, like, how do we deal with this? And look at what Jesus says in verse two. Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. So what Jesus is saying is, don't think that this happened to them because they are bad people. And sometimes, you know, you can think like, oh, tragedy hits. And, and, and maybe someone is, is at mistake. Maybe they have brought this upon themselves. Maybe God is, not a, is, is angry at them. But Jesus is saying, that's not how it works. When tragedy hits, don't think that these, that these are, are worse sinners than others. I tell you, no. But then he adds something very, very important. Look at verse 3. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what Jesus is saying is when you see these things happen, when tragedy hits innocent people, what your response should be is not judging those people. What your response should be is to repent. Now, what does it mean to repent? To repent is an interesting word. It actually means to turn around. So if you're heading one direction, to repent is actually to turn around 180 degrees and to go the opposite direction. And that is exactly what Jesus said. When Jesus came into the world, one of the first things that he announced when he announced the kingdom of God, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, what does that mean? You are heading a certain direction in your life, but you need to stop and you need to turn and you need to go in the opposite direction. You need to walk towards the kingdom of God and not in your own path. You need to repent of your sins, lay aside your sins, bring them to Christ, have a new direction in your life, a call to belong to the kingdom of God.
Now look at the second um, uh, thing that Jesus mentions here, because um, he now brings up another tragedy. So first, first we have a reference to a tragedy that happened upon people that were, that were massacred, basically, by the Romans. But then there's a second tragedy that Jesus mentions in verse 4. He says, he refers to another tragedy. He says, or those 18 people, those 18, on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? And he says again, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus it's referring to two instances, an instance of a massacre that happened with innocent people. And then the second instance is a tower that fell on 18 people and killed them. And Jesus says, do you think they are worse sinners? He says, no. But again, he brings up the most important thing. And that is what we should do when we see these tragedies happening around us. And that is repent, like turn around. Turn away from your own ways and turn towards God. Turn towards Christ. Repentance is not just turning away from bad things. It's actually turning away from bad things, but turning towards the very best thing. It's turning towards the kingdom of God, towards that friendship in Jesus that he wants to offer every single one of us. It's interesting in Luke chapter 13, verse 1 and 5, that one of the instances dealing with a, basically we could call it a um, natural disaster, just like we have a lot of natural disasters today, like hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, floodings, a tower that falls on people could also be, 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 be um, uh, referred to as, as somewhat of a natural disaster. It's not caused directly through uh, the human agents. But then we also have what we can call moral disasters right? Wars, terrorism, ethnic cleansing, killing, rape. This is caused by human beings. So, so in, the, in the instance of Luke chapter 13, the first five verses, we have an instance of a natural disaster or a, a, a moral disaster and a natural disaster. And in both instances, Jesus refers to the appropriate response, and that is to repent, to turn to God, to turn to God when you see these things happening around you. The results of a broken world are felt by everyone. There's no person on the face of this planet does not in some uh, way or sense, uh, sooner or later, they will feel the results of a broken world. But in the midst of all of this tragedy, we can choose to turn to God, to turn to God. You know, disaster and tragedy that comes suddenly, it's not always announced, right? You can't announce an earthquake. You can't, certain things cannot be announced. Disaster and tragedy. Sometimes that, that phone call comes so unexpectedly with that diagnosis of cancer. Sometimes that loss of the job, it happens from one day to another and you never expected it. Tragedy hits us very suddenly. But how can we pre be prepared for whatever hits us? We can be prepared by having our feet and our foundation in our life, our feet planted upon the rock of Christ. Our feet planted in the kingdom of God. And then we can face life because we face it together with our Savior that is right by our side. Signs are a call to repentance. It's a call to turn to God. Remember that all these things are the beginning of sorrows or all these things are the beginning of birth pains. And it's interesting because when you think about a birth, eventually there's a beautiful outcome right? Jesus wants us to know that these signs eventually lead to new life. Even though we're seeing all these things happening to our planet, 
We can still have hope because if they're birth pangs, then yes, that earthquake and the flooding and the, and the terrorism and the war, it's, it's horrific to see, but we know that eventually it's, gonna, it's pain, but it's going to lead to new life. Because, you know, I've, ne- I've never seen my wife in more pain than when she was about to give birth, but I've never seen her in more joy when that child was there. Are you with me? So eventually the joy comes. And, you know, that's the hope that we have. And I want to take you to a passage that describes that hope. In the book of Romans, right after the, gospel, the four Gospels, you have the book of Acts, which is the story of the first church. And, and right after that, you have the first letter of Paul, the book of Romans. And in chapter 8, he actually describes this hope that we are all waiting for and looking forward to. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, the Bible says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So Paul is saying, yes, yes, there's sufferings right now, but, but, but it's not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is coming. And then he says in verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject in futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors, take notice of the language here, groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. But not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Verse 24, for we are saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. What Paul is saying here is that the whole creation is waiting for something. The whole creation is waiting for a birth, and the birth is that very hope of the coming kingdom of God. And that's what we're waiting for, and that's what we can look forward to. Some years ago, I was traveling in Europe, and I was doing um, some public speaking in uh, Germany. And uh, right after the message that I'd given, there was a young man that came up to me and introduced himself to me. His name was Malik, and he came from uh, Somalia. And uh, it was interesting because uh, in, the, in, the, in the few moments that we had together, uh, he told me his story. I said, do you live here in Germany? He said, yes, I live in Germany. Where do you come from? I come from Somalia. And uh, I fled my country during the, the time of war there. And he said, I was traveling for 15 years. He was a young boy when he left together with his father. For 15 years, he was on his way from country to country to country to country, trying to get to a better place where he could, you know, live a normal life without war and and, and all that comes with war. And so, uh, you know, he tells me about the story of traveling across the Mediterranean Sea. And and you read these stories in the news, right? Another, you know, one boat sinks and people lose their lives. But it's one thing when you read it in the news. It's another thing when you're looking in the face of a person that has actually been there, experienced these things. And he says, I was there you know, he was in the ocean and the, 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 the kind of boat that they were on had, had sunk and he sees people dying around them, but he gets picked up by, the, by, the, um, uh, uh, by, by some people that were out there rescuing them. And so he gets taken uh, to, I believe it was Greece. And, and from there, he continued his travel. And, 
And, and, and I said to him, I said, with, with all that you're telling me, like, what kept you going with all of these difficulties and trials and, 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 and all of this heartbreak that you experienced on this journey all these years? What kept you going? And I will never forget his answer. He said it in one word. He said, hope. Hope for a better world. Hope for a better place. And, and, and now he had found a country where he could live in peace, relatively peace. And, and I'm thinking to myself, isn't that a picture of scripture? We are in this world and there are troubles in this world. There are storms in this world. There is uncertainty in this world. There are signs that are happening all around us, but we have this one word that we hold on to and we never let go. It's the word hope. Hope for a better future, amen? Hope for a better world where there is no suffering and no pain. And, and, and when you read the final chapters of the Bible in the book of Revelation, it says that all tears will be dried. All, all tears will be wiped away. And there will be a new world where God will dwell with us. In Luke 21, verse 28, Jesus says the following. Now, when these things begin to happen, and he's referring to all of these signs that we've been looking at tonight. When these things begin to happen, look up. You know, it's easy to look down. Oh, man, another earthquake. Oh, another pestilence. Oh, another flooding. Oh, another, another war. It's easy to look down. But Jesus says, when all these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. What a good message. What a message of hope do we have. You know, when uh, the disciples were traveling with Jesus from one uh, side of, of, of the Lake of Galilee to the other side, there's this story in the Gospels. As they're on their way, Jesus is sleeping in the boat, and they are making their way to the other side of the lake. And then there's a huge storm that arises. And, they, and the boat is being tossed to and fro, and the waves are just hitting the boat, and, and they are afraid that they're going to lose their lives. And then they realize something. There's actually someone in the boat that might be able to help them. And so they wake up Jesus. First, they are in awe of the storm. Oh, man, this storm is going to take our lives. This storm is so big. There's nothing we can do. And then they realize, okay, let's wake him up. And so they wake up Jesus, and they say something interesting. They say to him, don't you care that we're perishing? Which is, by the way, very ironic because he came into the world that we do not need to perish. He came to give his life as a ransom that we can live forever. And so they wake him up, and they say, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus gets up, and he speaks to the wind, and he speaks to the ways, and everything is calm. And now, now, they're no longer in awe of the storm, but now they're in awe of Jesus. And this is the question that I want to ask you tonight. Where have you placed your awe? Oh, are you amazed by everything that's happening? You know, the storm that is now hitting this country? Are you amazed by all of the wars that you hear about? Are you amazed by the disasters and the distress and the world that is spitting out of control? Or have you placed your eyes upon Jesus and are you in awe of your Savior? Because your Savior that can calm the winds and the waves can also bring a peace and tranquility into your life that you cannot understand. And I hope that in the midst of these signs that you will look to your Savior, that you will take a hold of him and say, I will not let you go. Stay close to Jesus. He is our refuge. He is our rock. And the kingdom of glory will soon appear. But until that time, let us have our eyes upon Jesus, our Savior, because in him we find hope. In him we find a future that is a place to look forward to a place where we will dwell with him forever and ever. And the Bible, my friends, the scripture is the way that we navigate to that kingdom of God.
This is the way prophecy, the very things that we're studying during this seminar, is preparing us and helping us to arrive at that safe haven, at the kingdom of God. Jesus is soon coming. The signs of the times are all around us, but let us look up as our redemption is drawing nigh. Shall we pray together in closing? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for being with us this evening. I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the amazing promises that you have given. And Lord, tonight, we want to belong to you. We want to just say that we want to be part of your kingdom. Lord, help us and prepare us for that great day when you come again. And even now, help us to be a witness of you in this world. Lord, as the signs are transpiring all around us, help us to look up, to have that confidence that you are right by our side and it will lead us through, just like you led the disciples through that storm. May you lead us through whatever storm we are facing. And we thank you, Lord, that you are faithful. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.